Good morning, brothers and sisters. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you today in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It is a joy to worship with you today and to have the opportunity to preach to you the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me express my deep respect and affection and gratitude for your pastor, Dr. Mason, and his family and the work of this church. It was a joy to be here and a privilege to be here for the conference this weekend. And I am grateful that he invited me to stay over uh, for whatever it's worth. Uh, the church I serve lets me skip around the country all week long. They just insist I'm home on Sunday mornings. Uh, this is a rare, very rare occasion uh, for me to be in another pulpit on a Sunday morning, but when Pastor Mason asked me, uh, I didn't hesitate. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you and to pitch hint for him as he gets some rest from, from a rich and full weekend. So let's get down to business if you don't mind. If you would get your copy of God's Word, stand with me for just a moment. I know you were just seated, but stand with me and let's pray together, and then we'll remain standing in honor of the author of the Scriptures as we read this morning from John, the Gospel of John. Father, in the name of Jesus, we do thank you and praise you for your goodness and greatness and graciousness toward us. You are great and greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. We have much to praise you for, but above all, we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. And in his name, we ask afresh that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Draw to yourself those who should be saved and cause your children to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Help me to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And as the seed of the word is planted and watered, we know that only you can give the increase. Yeah. So as always, we reserve for you the highest praise and full credit for all of the fruit that shall come from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 2, Gospel of John chapter 2. Beginning at verse number one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Yeah. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jar with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you for your patience. John 2, verses 1 through 11, records a miracle in which Jesus turns water into wine. The significance of this miracle is stated at the end of the story in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. John tells us this was the first miracle Jesus performed, which directly refutes apocryphal books and others that claim various other trivial miracles Jesus supposedly performed. John tells us this was his first miracle, and note that he doesn't actually call it a miracle, he calls it a sign. This is the terminology John uses throughout his Gospels for the miracles of Jesus. He calls it a sign because the point of the miracle was not the miracle itself. The miracle pointed to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, we find the clear purpose of the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. Not only does verse 11 describe the miracle two ways, it also gives us two results of the miracle. First, verse 11 tells us that by this miracle, Jesus put his glory on display. John 1, verse 14, says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This miracle put the glory of Jesus Christ on display. And likewise, we are told in verse 11 that this miracle caused the disciples to believe in him. The disciples already believed in him. But this demonstration of power over nature strengthened, deepened, intensified their faith. Unfortunately, many who read and encounter the story today miss the Christ-exalting, faith-inducing message of the miracle. There are other miracles John records of Jesus providing for the needy, healing the sick, and even raising the dead. 
And in comparison to those other miracles, this first miracle in John 2 seems somewhat profane almost, if you will. What was Jesus doing at this wedding in Cana of Galilee? Why did he turn water into wine? What is the significance of this miracle? What is the message of this miracle? How does this miracle reveal the glory of Jesus and lead to faith in him? I would submit to you this, this afternoon that the miracle in John 2 verses 1 through 11 teaches us in a real sense that Jesus is God who has come to turn our disappointments into joy. Throughout scripture, wine is a symbol for joy. In fact, Psalm 104 verse 15 declares that God gives wine to gladden the heart of men. Wine symbolizes joy in scripture and the running out of wine here is symbolic of a loss of joy. It reminds us, friends, that life is frail and brief and difficult. It doesn't matter who you are, where you, where you are, what you have. Inevitably, at some point, the wine will run out. In fact, this story says that the wine can run out even if Jesus is at the party. But the good news is that Jesus is the life of the party. Who has come to turn our disappointments into joy by his gracious presence, his sovereign authority, and his transforming power. Let me show you that in the miracle itself recorded in John 2. First note with me the gracious presence of Jesus. The occasion of the miracle is recorded in verses 1 and 2. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Some unnamed, unidentified, unknown couple got married. And as they were making out their guest list, somehow Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited to this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the text tells us explicitly that Jesus was invited to the wedding and his first disciples followed him to the event. And so before we go any further, this unnamed couple is to be commended for inviting Jesus to the wedding. I um, submit to you today that there would be less broken marriages if we, in the very beginning, saw the significance of inviting Jesus to the wedding and seeking his active presence in married and family life. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we are told for this reason, a man shall 
leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. How in the world can two sinful people live out the covenant of companionship as God has intended? That's a whole message by itself, but here's a good place to start. Invite Jesus to the wedding. Adrian Rogers here reminds us by saying that Jesus wants to be with you at the office on Monday morning just as much as he wants to be with you in church on Sunday morning. He wants to be invited into every sphere and every aspect and every dynamic of our life. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6, Solomon advises his sons, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 6 to 8 clause. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. And so this couple wisely invited Jesus to their wedding. That's not the big news. The big news of these opening verses is that Jesus accepted their invitation. He consented to come to the wedding. If you read down in John's Gospel, chapter 11 tells us that Jesus showed up for a family in one of the saddest moments of life, the death of Lazarus. Here in John 2, Jesus shows up in one of the happiest moments of life, a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And the truth is, it doesn't matter what the situation is, good or bad, sunshine or rain, celebration or tragedy. If you invite the Lord into your life situation, he will show up. As I was a boy in church, they used to sing a hymn, I need thee every hour. Oh, precious Lord, I need thee, oh, I need thee. And I just always assumed, this is a sad sounding song, I, I just assumed that it was some tragedy that made the person write this song. It just sounds Said, I need the oh, I need the, and it just sounds sad. <laughs> but when I looked up the story, I discovered it was no sad occasion at all that led to the writing of that song. There was a sister named Annie Hawks who was just cleaning up her kitchen one day. And while she was cleaning up, she was reflecting on the goodness of the Lord, and it dawned on her that if things were gonna stay that way. I need the Lord every hour and every moment and in every situation of life. And so the text, first of all, presents to us the gracious presence of Jesus. But then we see in this story the sovereign authority of Jesus. When the story begins, Jesus is an invited guest, but his role quickly shifts from invited guest to governing host. And this shift of the role of Jesus affirms the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in Mary's report to Jesus, Jesus' response to Mary, and Mary's command to the servants. That's verses 3 through 5. Notice, first of all, Mary's 
report to Jesus. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. In the day of the text, a wedding feast could last as long as a week or so. It was a great celebration that required wise planning, careful execution, and abundant supplies. To have the wine run out in the wedding feast would be a scandal of embarrassment for the groom and his family who would be responsible for the wedding feast. It could also open them up to lawsuits. You know, the family of the bride wouldn't be playing. I mean, if you can't afford a party, how are you gonna take care of my daughter? <laughs> this, is a <laughs> this is a scandal of embarrassment. It, it, might, it might not sound much, but this was a, a big deal in its day. Seems profane, but it's actually profound. Max Lucado calls this a calamity of the common scale. These are the kind of problems we have in life. Most of the problems in our life don't register on the Richter scale. They don't require a, 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 the national terror alert to be raised. It, it may not matter to anyone else the trial, the challenge, we are facing, but the text says, what may not matter to anyone else matters to Jesus. It says he even cares about the things that embarrass us. They ran out of wine, and the question of the text is, what do you do when the wine runs out? Verse 3 tells us that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. M Mary did not present this issue to Jesus because she expected him to do a miracle. Verse 11 tells us this was the first miracle that Jesus performed. So she most likely did not expect a Miracle, even though, however, she did know that the life of her son was marked by the supernatural from the moment of his conception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and somehow, instinctively, yeah. when she heard the news of the need that arose, she did not take the issue to the bride or the groom. She did not take the issue to the master of the feast or to any of the servants. She didn't even tell the disciples about what was going on. She took the matter straight to Jesus. I don't think y'all get what I'm saying. This is, this is what you do when the wine runs out. You, you, you go tell Jesus. A lot of the things we're dealing with would go a lot better if we didn't spend as much time talking to people that can't do nothing about the situation anyway. And take the issue to the Lord Jesus Christ. She took it to Jesus. And when you look at verse 3, you'll know 
that not only did she take the matter to Jesus, but when she took it to Jesus, she did not tell Jesus what to do. No, no, no instructions, no commands, no claiming the promises. She just, she just brought the matter to Jesus and laid it at his feet. This is what you should do when the wine runs out. You should be like Elijah Hoffman and say to your soul, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me for he ever loves and cares for his own. In verse 3, we see Mary's report to Jesus. But then in verse 4, will you note Jesus' response to Mary. Jesus, they have no wine. <laughs> Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse four is big because here, we see Jesus making a clear distinction between his human role as the son of Mary and his messianic role as the son of God. Here he addresses Mary as woman, but don't, don't let that throw you. This term woman is the respectful yet affectionate way Jesus addresses his mother throughout John's gospel. Be clear, Jesus loved his mother so much so that while he was dying on the cross for your sins and mine, he stopped dying long enough to make sure his mama had somebody to go home with. Jesus is not, not disrespecting mama here. But here, Jesus is making it clear to his mother and to all that he gets ministerial direction from his heavenly father, not his earthly mother. I love you, mama, but this ain't your business. This is a subtle rebuke to our Roman Catholic friends who would have us think you need to get through Mary to get to Jesus. Here we are reminded to get access to the Lord. You don't, you don't need Mary or patron saint or, or priest in a booth. You, you can come with confidence to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Here he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, throughout, um, throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about his time or his hour. Maybe one of my favorite statements is in John 7, verse 6, where his brothers try to get him to go up to Judea during the Feast of Booths. And Jesus says in John 7, verse 6, this is, this is a smooth diss to his brothers. He says, uh, my hour has not yet come, but your time is any time. 
That is, when you don't have divine purpose, any time the right time for you, but my time has not yet come. John 13, verse 1, uh, in the upper room before the last supper, uh, Jesus knew that his hour had come. And in John 17, verse 1, he said to the Father, my, my hour has come. Glorify the, Father, the Son that he may glorify you. But here, Jesus says, it's not my hour. His hour would come in his crucifixion and his resurrection. He is saying that I am going to be glorified by what I accomplish at a cross, not by what I accomplish at a wedding. Here we see the tension between the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. The theology of glory would have Jesus to accomplish his purpose without the cross. It's the reign of Christ without the suffering of Christ. But here Jesus reminds us that he will not compromise the ultimate for the immediate. He wouldn't do it here for his mother and friend. He's not going to do it for you either. There are times in life where you've got to learn how to wait for his hour. Here, we see Mary's report to Jesus, and then Jesus' response to Mary, and then Mary's command to the servants. Do you see verse 5? After the Lord, you know, kind of straightened her out, she don't say nothing else to him. <laughs> she says, I ain't even going to talk to him. She turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Here is the open secret to divine intervention. Just do whatever he tells you to do. Personal obedience is the spiritual platform for divine intervention. He's able to fix the situation in your life, but you've got to do what he tells you to do. Obey him actively. Do. Obey him completely. Do whatever. Obey him exclusively. Do whatever he commands you to do. Here we see the inseparable marriage between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Without God, you can't do it. But without you, he won't do it. Here, he is the one who will make the difference. But he, by the words of Mary, Remind us that you must do what he tells you to do. We see that not just here, but throughout John's gospel. In John 2, Jesus here will turn water into wine, but that is only after the servants obey his command to pour water in and then pour some out to the governor of the feast. In John chapter 5, for instance, we see that Jesus will heal a man who has been laying by Bethesda's pool for 38 years, but it is only after he obeys the command of Jesus to rise, take up your bed, and walk. In John 6, Jesus feeds a crowd of at least 5,000 with few loaves and a few fish, but only after the disciples obey his command to inventory their resources, make the people sit down, and even take up the baskets of leftover. In John 9, Jesus opens the eyes of a man born blind, but only after he had obeyed Jesus' command to go wash in the pool of Siloam. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
But it is only after Mary and Martha obey the command of Jesus to show me where you lay them and roll the stone away. And you remember that Jesus stood at that tomb and spoke into death and said, Lazarus, come forth. And my daddy would say that he had to call Lazarus by name because if he would have just said, come forth, all the dead since Cain killed Abel would have got up and started walking around. He's, he's able to make the difference, but you've got to do what he says. There is the gracious presence of Jesus, the sovereign authority of Jesus, but quickly, will you know with me the, the transforming power of Jesus? Sunday school teacher reviews the lesson at the end after teaching on a miracle and asks anyone to tell her in response what a miracle was. The response she got was unexpected but accurate. One boy stood up and said, a miracle is something we can't do but Jesus can. That's a good definition by John's introduction to the miracles of Jesus. It is what he can do that no one else can. What can Jesus do that no one else can? Well, Jesus can do, friends, what religion cannot do. Look at verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is just a parenthetical statement to set up what will happen next, but don't read that too fast. There are these water pots. They're just common water pots, not magical water pots, just common water pots. But here we are reminded what can happen when, when you put the ordinary in the hands of Jesus. Yeah. Instead of telling Jesus what you don't have, give him what you do have. And he can make the ordinary extraordinary. John 6 will tell us that little becomes much when you just place it in the master's hand. These are common water pots with religious significance. To make sure they were ceremonially clean before they entered the feast, they would wash their hands ritually in these water pots so that they would be clean according to the religious system. But Jesus will take these water pots representing the religious system and do with them what religion cannot do. In fact, later in the chapter, in verses 13 through 19, Jesus will cleanse the temple. And when they confront Jesus about cleansing the temple, and ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered in verse 19, same chapter, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He, he is saying that he, not Israel, not Jerusalem, not that temple. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And he gives a holy wink to this new reality by taking this representation of the religious system and using it to turn water into wine. He is telling us that he is able to do what Religion cannot do. Let me, let me just give it to you in his own words. John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way. Yeah. 
the truth and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. If, if you want to be saved, he says, I'm the way. If you want to be sure, I am the truth. You want to be satisfied, I am the life. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 17, John says, for the law was given through Moses, the grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. You want rules, rituals, and regulation? Go to Moses. You want grace and truth? Run to the cross and trust in Jesus. Uh, in, a, in an interesting irony, the first miracle of Moses was to turn water into blood in the Nile River as a sign of God's severe judgment. The first miracle of Jesus was to turn water into wine as a sign of God's amazing grace. Jesus can do what religion can't do, but Jesus, Jesus can turn water into wine. Look at the text. I, I wish y'all was enjoying this as much as I am. This is good news. Listen what Jesus can do. And I want you to see, this is the heart of the text. If I can lean into this, I'll, I'll let you alone. Listen to this. He said to them, now, draw some, well, verse 7. He said, fill the jars with water, and they filled them. And then he said, in the next verse, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. That's the miracle. In the most understated terms, here is a miracle. Here are these jars. He tells the servants, pour water into the jars, and they do it. And then he tells them, after they have poured water into the jars, pour some wine out for the governor of the feast. Somewhere. That's it. Just no waving of his hand, no, no special words, just, just somewhere between pouring in and pouring out. Water turned into wine. Spring water. Spring water saw the face of its creator and blushed in the new wine. Skipping the entire wine-making process from pouring in to pouring out. The Lord worked a miracle. That's, that's the point of the message. Do, do, you, do you believe this story? I, I believe it. I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't believe that Jesus turned water into wine. I believe this with all of my heart. And I bring this story up to say, friends, that if Jesus can transform water into wine, there is nothing in your life that's too hard for him to do. Yeah. 
He can heal the sick body. He can mend a broken heart. He can restore a broken marriage. He can overcome sinful habits. He can save a lost soul. He can fund the ministry work. It doesn't matter what the issue is. He's in the transforming business. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed and the, the new has come. There's a drunk man that the Lord saved and cleaned up and called to preach. And he's standing on a street corner preaching one day, preaching the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And somebody from the crowd yells out, oh, mister, leave us alone. No, nobody believes that Jesus actually turned water into wine. Little did he know, he is standing near that upstart evangelist family. And the man's daughter grabbed the coat of the heckler and looked up at him and said, Mr. I believe that Jesus turned water into wine. And not only can he turn water into wine, but I saw him save my daddy and turn wine into good food, a new house in this dress I'm wearing. <laughs> Y'all ain't in here with me. One final word, Jesus saves the best till last. It's verses 9 and 10. <laughs> they, they pour it out. How, how would you feel, you the servants, the master of the feast don't know, they know what was in those jars, water. They give it to the master of the feast for him to taste it. They're waiting to be embarrassed. Until the master of the feast tasted and he said, wait, wait a minute. He, he, he calls the family together and he says, this, this ain't my first party. I know how parties work. When, when, parties, when parties take place, the, the hosts bring out the best stuff first. And then, you know, when folk done drunk some and can't tell the difference, they put the good stuff up and bring out the cheap wine. He said, but I ain't never been to a party like this. Y'all reverse the whole way you do parties. You, you have saved the best wine until last. This is how Jesus works. He saves the best until last. The world has a lot to offer and the world offers a lot of a lot of good things. It's interesting, you know, we, we try to share the gospel as if uh, sin is not pleasurable. It, it's, it's pleasurable. Hebrews 11 calls it the pleasures of sin. It, it was pleasurable when you was out there doing it. <laughs> sin has its pleasures, but, but it, it doesn't last. The nightlife may excite you for a little while, but it won't last. Strong drink, drugs may stimulate you for a little while, but it won't last. Foolish friends may entertain you for a little while, but it won't last. The, the things of this world, say, Satan offers you his gifts, and, and, and he, he gives a good signing bonus up front, but, but the benefits don't last. 
But this is why you ought to stick with Jesus no matter what. He saves the best until the last. You, um, if I was at my home church, I'd be hollering right now. You, um, you, uh, you, uh, you weren't invited to this wedding, but so what? There's another wedding. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, John says, the angel told me to write this. Blessed is everyone who's invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You, you wasn't at this wedding, but don't worry, this ain't the last party. And he saves the best until last. If you run to the cross and put your trust in Jesus, the best is yet to come. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. Yes, sir.